Welcome to the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. This podcast will be a sharing of part of my morning routine as I prepare for the day with the Word of God. We will be partaking of Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision, each day's morning devotional from Charles Haddon Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, and we'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the newest and, I believe, the most accurate translation of the Word of God. We will be following a Bible reading calendar that provides for reading the whole Bible in a year that was created by Minister Robert Murray McShane for his congregation back in 1842, and that has been a part of my daily reading for over six years now. Good morning and welcome to the Friday, December 1st episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I am Wayne Floyd, your host. The Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian podcast community. You can find us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. A lot of great listening over there, over 60 well-curated podcasts, wide, wide variety of topic areas, all covered from a biblical worldview. I will guarantee you're going to find something over there to listen to, and there's a real good chance you're going to find more over there to listen to than you actually have time to listen to it in. All right. Well, so I ended up running out of time to be able to record uh, the Bible reading for today and stuff like that. So I'm going to leave that to you, uh, your Bible reading. I, again, I've shown you where um, online you can you can find the prayers and the devotions and all that stuff. So um, I'm going to leave that to you. And but the thing is, the 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 program from last evening, uh, the Bible study from Wednesday evening, is relatively long. It's longer than one of my normal episodes. So I, I or well, it's longer than the evening segment. So what I was just going to do is do a little bit of an intro here, let you know what we're doing. So the Bible study is uh, Psalm four, and it's going to be the first three verses of Psalm five. Um, so I, I, you know, I I pray that this. Um, equips and edifies you, uh, this study and uh, the Psalms as we work our way through it. Um, and I hope you enjoy. All right. Well, with it being the end of the month, we're going to be working through the Psalms today instead of working through the prophets. Um, and we're going to cover Psalm four and five this evening. So let me go ahead and read Psalm four for you and we'll dig right in. For the choir director with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my glory become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and seek falsehood? But know that Yahweh has set apart the Holy One for himself. Yahweh hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Ponder in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. Many are saying, who will show us good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. You have put gladness in my heart. More than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Yahweh, make me to abide in safety. So again, obviously, this is a this is a psalm of David, um, and uh, with stringed instruments. So it, it in the actual Hebrew, it's with stringed or hand instruments. It typically w was a was a type of it, instrument played with your hands. In most cases, it would be stringed like a lute, but it could be others as well. Um, 
And of course it was of David and, and for the choir director, that's what we say, but it, but it was actually the leading musician, the musician that would lead the group, um, that would be playing. So again, this was one that, as we've talked about the Psalms is, is their hymn book. It was their hymn book. And so this would be, this would be read or sung to musical accompaniment is what this is saying. And, and to particularly to hand played instruments, something like a stringed instrument, a lute or something like that. So in some, uh, some of the um, commentators I ran across, they try to, they typically talk about this one can pre be pretty conveniently paired with Psalm three. So the two can work together. Psalm three being the morning Psalm and Psalm four being the evening Psalm or the evening hymn. Um, but there's nothing specifically that ties ties them in together. Um, we're going to see in our two psalms tonight that there's no real clear indicator of when these occurred. Um, we don't have anything specifically in David's language and the things he says to indicate this is specifically happen, happening. Like in some of them you'll see as we move on through, well, I mean, in Psalm 3, because of, because of the... Uh, the uh, introductory text for it in the Hebrew, it says when, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Well, we don't have that in Psalm 3 and Psalm 4, nor do we really have anything in David's language in these Psalms, um, I'm in 4 and 5, to tell us exactly when it happens. However, um, because of the language David does use, it can be pretty, it, it can come across relatively clearly that David is in some form of distress. I mean, this is David speaking of that distress, but praising God and asking God to, to listen to his prayers. And we're going to see that in both of them tonight, that he asked for God to hear his prayers. But at the same time, he, he, he talks about how joyful he is because God protects him and God alone protects him. And we're going to see that. But we see that David hops right in with his very first verse. And the, the, David kind of reminds me of Paul. If you've ever noticed, and we, we were actually talking about in Sunday school this past Sunday, Paul in his epistles, you'll see him going along theology, 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 and then all of a sudden he waxes into seven or eight verses of prayer and praise right in the middle of it. Um, he particularly does that in Ephesians 1. He just takes off into prayer, and you've got the whole end of the chapter that is prayer. He does it again in um, chapter 3 of Ephesians as well. And David will tend to do this. While, while we can actually look at these psalms individually and see the whole psalm as a prayer in a lot of cases, David here in the very first verse obviously prays. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So here's David already praying. Um, but we want to we note a few things here. Note how he refers to God. O God of my righteousness. So again, based on the things he talks about um, as we get down in verses 2, 3, 4, 5, um, 6, and 7, we're, we're going to see clearly some indicators that obviously he's in some form of distress and he's running up against people, and we see it in, in, in uh, Psalm 5 as well, that he's having issues with folks. Um, and of course, if you've read the histories at all, you know that David was basically a man of blood. And I, and I don't mean that in an ugly sense, but the fact is he, he pretty much, I mean, that, that was exactly why God didn't have him build the temple 
because he was a man of war. He was constantly fighting. They weren't fights that he picked. They were fights he had to fight and fights he fought for God. I mean, the fact is, I don't know that many that many shepherds, little shepherd boys wandering around that are going to want to go up and pick a fight with an eight-foot giant or a nine-foot giant. That's just not the norm, but he fought for God. So, again, we see this, but we see him very clearly speaking of, oh, God of my righteousness. Now, what we, what we need to realize there, so this is the thing, if you look through the histories, other than his misbehavior and then his blatant sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, David is in the position he's in and he's doing the things he's doing because God has directed him to do it. God is very clear that David is a man after his own heart. Okay? So when he's saying, oh God of my righteousness, he's being very, very clear that all these folks that are giving me issue, all these folks that are, that are speaking against God, and we're going to see this as we come into our further verses, that he, he talks about them, um, how long will my glory become a reproach? Um, how long will you love what is worthless and seek falsehood? As we move on through that, again, these are people around him that, that are foolish in, in the sense of the Bible. They're foolish. They seek after folly. They chase ridiculousness. And they rebel against God. I mean, we saw it in our prayer talking about being rebels. They, they are rebelling against God. David is God's anointed. I mean, the fact is, David was anointed before Saul was ever killed, before Saul was ever mur- hit, killed in battle. David was anointed as king. David is God's anointed. David is God's anointed when Absalom tries to take over. David is God's anointed um, in, in all those occurrences. So God has placed him into a, to a position of righteousness. And we see that in David. But isn't that you and I? He is the God of our righteousness. He has chosen us and he has placed us in a position of being holy and blameless before God. Not not through anything we've done, not through our own righteousness. Again, God of his righteousness. God set that righteousness on David. God sets that righteousness on us. We're draped in the righteousness of Christ. But again, it's it's that same implication there. Um, you could all almost, I mean, you read this first verse and except for the way the language is put together, it could be a cry from any one of us that answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness, because believe me, he is righteous where I am absolutely not. And the only thing righteous within me is a righteous, an alien righteousness that he has given me, not anything I've done myself. And David understood this. David knew this. And this is what David is speaking of. But David is also speaking of it to make clear within this psalm that if you're going against me, you are going against God. And we need to remember that with David, but we need to remember that with ourselves as well. As long as we are walking the worthy walk that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, as long as we're walking that worthy walk, if they're coming against us, they're coming against God. They're fighting that alien righteousness that God has placed upon us. Then he moves on in verse 2. O sons of men, 
How long will my glory become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and seek falsehood? Selah. So, O sons of men there, um, from the research I did, there are a couple of different approaches to what he's saying here. Some believe he's referring to, because sons of men, that phrase, has a tendency to refer to mighty men, men of position, men of leadership. So that's what that tends to, to mean, is, oh you, oh, you leaders, how long will my glory become a reproach? Basically what he's saying there, is, as far as David saying that, is that he's been glorified by God because God has chosen him. And how long is that going to be a reproach against them? Because they're contesting with David. They're fighting against David. That's how we know it. this has to be happening either when he's out in the wilderness running from Saul or whoever else, or when he's running from Absalom, when Absalom's tried to take over, whatever times those were. Um, but again, you know, how long will this become? He's like, how long are you going to keep doing this? God has had me anointed by Samuel, no less. Anointed by Samuel, put me in place here. This lowly shepherd boy has made me king and has blessed all that I have done. Gave me the ability to take out Goliath. And, his, and, and, and you see David repeatedly with much, much fewer men proceed to just dominate the Philistines. Just dominate them. Yet he's asking them, how long are you going to keep doing this? How long is my glory going to continue to reproach you because you're attacking it, you're attacking God, you're rebelling against God? And he goes on, how long will you love what is worthless and seek falsehood? Again, he's, he's, David's continuing to call out that, that they're constantly seeking the things of the world. They're, they're, thinking, they're seeking things that um, of their own imagination, of, of their own preference, not the things of God. So he reproves them for that dishonor. And he, and he brings and he makes clear the damage they're doing to their own soul. Again, the glory being a reproach to them is damaging their soul. The worthless and the falsehood, they're wasting their time they're the time that God has given them on this earth. And again, this is, a, this is a society. This is not like our society where there's some of us that are Christian, but we're, we live in, in a great vast expanse of people that have no belief or flawed beliefs. This was within a country, within an area, where all proclaimed to believe the same thing and lived it generation by generation by generation. So again, God has given them their, that life. That's something they would have all agreed to, yet they're wasting it. They're wasting it in rebellion against God, and that's what he's really calling them out for. But then he goes on in verse 3, and he sets before them the happiness of godly people for their encouragements to be religious. But know that Yahweh has set apart the Holy One for Himself. Yahweh hears when I call to Him. Again, He makes clear that, that Yahweh Himself sets apart the Holy One. That, that Yahweh sets apart the Chosen One. That Yahweh has set Him apart. And that applies to you and I as well. 
He has set us apart. Again, that, that is the term, the Greek term that refer, that is translated as church, the ecclesia. It means the set apart ones. It's very clear that we are to be set apart from this world. We live in it, but we are not of it. This is what David is proclaiming to them as well, is I've been set apart by God. I've been set apart by God. And he's not saying that to go, oh, look at me, pat me on the back. It's I've been set apart by God. And he hears me when I call him. Now, that wasn't necessarily a common thing in their time that God listened and responded to them. Not, not by that point. This isn't the time of Moses and them coming out and through the desert for 40 years and the burning bush and all of that. This is much, much later than that. But God is responding to David. And this is public knowledge. It's not like this is happening off in a vacuum somewhere and nobody else knows this. God is responding. And what he's doing is, here's David showing them that, and, and he's showing them that's why these two verses are right together, that he set apart his holy ones, holy one for himself. Thus, he hears when I call him. He's trying to encourage them to stop rebelling and be these holy ones, to stop fighting against God, stop fighting against me, stop rebelling against God, and join me. Which is exactly what you and I should be doing out there evangelizing. That's the whole point. Is we out, we're out there taking the gospel to this world. That is our sole command, is to take the gospel to the world. This is what David is doing to these who should already know it, but are showing clearly by their, by their fruits that they're not. Verse 4. David is calling upon them to consider their ways, to really think. He's trying to get them to really think about what they're doing here. Tremble and do not sin. Ponder in your heart upon your bed and be still. So, interestingly enough, tremble and do not sin, we see that quoted quoted slightly differently, but quoted in Ephesians 4.26. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, I don't know that David specifically means that from the, from the Hebrew that I looked up for tremble. That was pretty good. The idea meaning to stand in awe, to be in awe, to, and to be truly contemplative of God and cease sinning. That's what he's trying to say here. He's trying to tell them is be in awe of God because obviously they're not if they're rebelling against God, correct? Obviously they're not if they're rebelling against God. He's saying stand in awe of God and don't sin. Stop sinning. Ponder in your heart upon your bed and be still. What he's telling them to do is stop with all the running around and again, what we talked about, the folly, the worthlessness, the falsehood that was going on back in verse 2. He's saying, put all that down and think about what you're doing. Think about this and ponder it. Meditate on it on your bed. Stop. And again, the be still, the stopping, the just putting it aside and stopping and contemplating it. Meditate on it. And understand this. Again, he's trying to get them to understand, to stop chasing after the things of the world, stop chasing after what their compatriots are running around doing, because we see it repeatedly throughout the history of Israel um, that 
one guy would get a wild hair and everybody would go run off, running off after him without really even thinking about it. We even see that um, throughout the Gentile world when uh, Paul, ends up, <laughs> Paul ends up causing a, causing a riot in Ephesus and they, they get to where they take him into a public, public forum or whatever and the people are yelling stuff and they're all yelling the same thing except they have absolutely no idea why they're yelling it. They're just yelling it because everybody else is yelling it. And it becomes very, very clear that more than half the people have absolutely no idea why. Well, that honestly, that's the human condition. The, the fact is, and, and I, th- this may upset people, but I'm going to say it flat out, the more people you get together in a group, the dumber the group as a whole becomes because its behavior shows that. The, the behavior of it becomes less and less logical, less and less learned, less and less planned, less and less and less reasonable. They become dumber and dumber and dumber as more pile together in that, in that sense. This is, what he's, this is what he's getting at is stop, be still, and meditate on this. And then he goes on in, in verse 5, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. Now we see repeatedly, um, we see multiple times Jesus calling out the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their sacrificial practices in the Gospels. And he makes clear to them that their sacrifices are garbage. That the fact is that, that in some cases, even though they're doing the right thing, their motivation for doing so is so bad, is so flawed. Because that's the thing. I, I, I'm sorry. The, the fact is, and, and we've got so many in our world today that will go out and do the good thing for the wrong reason. Well, I'm sorry. It's still, it's still the wrong reason. If your heart's not in the right place and you're running off and doing, I, the, the fact is, I know of churches in the, in the area and it's great that they go feed the homeless. I think that's wonderful that they feed the homeless. But there is absolutely zero sharing of the gospel. There's zero trying to disciple these people. None of that. Feeding the homeless is great, but that's not our primary call. Our primary call is to share the gospel. We should be doing them together. And Jesus calls them out on that. Um, he, he definitely razzes the Pharisees on the fact that they turn around and they try to dedicate things that ought to be going to take care of their parents, that they dedicate them to God. And they're not doing it because they want to do good for God. They're doing it to keep their parents from getting them. The heart's not in the right place. This is what he's trying to point out to them is offer the sacrifices of righteousness. Note how he denotes that. The sacrifices of righteousness, the correct ones. Um, God is looking for proper sacrifices, not that of the unrighteous. Um, Isaiah 1, 11 through 15. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says Yahweh? I have had enough of burnt offerings of ram, rams and the fat of fed cattle and in the blood of bulls, lambs or goats. I take no pleasure when you come to appear before me. Who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath. The calling of convocation. I cannot endure your, endure wickedness in the solemn assembly. My soul hates your new moon festivals and your appointed times. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. 
So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Indeed, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. That says it right there. That says it right there. I, I, again, and, and while David is speaking to those around him saying, you've got to be doing these things for the right reason, you've got to come in sacrifice and righteousness. You have to be truly worshiping God. Same needs to be happening within churches today. And it doesn't. It doesn't. There are way too many that come to sit the pew and check off the checkbox. And the churches that, well, we should have a ministry, so let's go do this thing. And they go and do it. And it's like, okay, we've done this thing. We can check this off. We can put it in our reports, especially some of those denominations where there's a large hierarchy. Here, we can report up to our hierarchy that we're doing all these things. But the motivation's not there because the fact is the congregation, the leadership, are just doing things to check the box. The motivation is not there. They are not the sacrifices of righteousness. And how dare that be? Because if it's not, we're still in rebellion. They're still in rebellion. That's what David is trying to indicate to them, that they must be the sacrifices of righteousness so that they can trust in Yahweh. So then we see David go on into accounts of his own interaction, his own interaction with God. Many are saying, who will show us good, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. And we're going to see, actually I'm going to go ahead and read verse 7 too. You have your gladness in my heart. I'm sorry, you have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. Well, we see that between the two of them. We see clearly between these two verses that the many, the ungodly, are always looking for the temporal. Again, listen to the question. Who will show us good? That's looking for the temporal. And again, he speaks of it again at the end of verse 7. More than when their grain and new wine abound. That's speaking of the temporal. That's speaking of the worldly satisfaction. But not the things of God. The true satisfaction that is in a personal relationship with Christ. That's what David is speaking of here. He's, he's telling God, lift up, the, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. He's saying, look on us spiritually. Look on us and bless us spiritually. And he goes, you've put gladness in my heart. And David is saying, you've put gladness in my heart more than they can have when their, when their um, bins are running over, when, when, when their larders are full. You're still blessing me more. You're still putting more gladness in my heart. And he's trying to say that to make that point to them. Um, Matthew Henry says of this gladness, this is gladness in the heart, inward, solid, substantial joy. The mirth of worldly people is but a flash, a shadow, even in laughter. Their heart is sorrowful. Proverbs 14, 13. Even in laughter, the heart may be in pain, and the end of joy may be grief. Again, he's being very, David's being very, very clear here, making a separation between the two. Um, and, and of course, this made me um, go to a few places. Um, made me think of Luke. I was actually reading in Luke in, my, uh, in my daily re one of my daily reading plans, and I came across this. And this is such a clear comparison of those 
like David is speaking of here, of those that are putting their focus on the things that are not of God. Luke 12, verses 15 through 21. Then he said to them, Watch out and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you prepared? So is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's exactly what David was saying here. And making clear to those who he's speaking to in this psalm, trying to tell them to to go away from, you know, how long will you love what is worthless and seek falsehood? He's trying to turn them away from that. So he's showing them that you can focus on all this worldly, but that's not where where your heart and your mind should be. Matthew 6. These are my favorite verses. So I needless to say these popped up, but these are my favorite verses in here. Matthew 6, verses 26 through 34. Actually, 25 through 34, excuse me. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's what David is saying here. That's clearly what David is saying here. He's trying to point them at the gladness that that God gives him in his heart. And not only is he talking to them, he's talking to you and me. Because it is way too easy in this world, and and believe me, I'm right there with you. We've hit a point where the majority of our society is living hand to mouth as it is. We're living paycheck to paycheck. And heaven forbid something come up where we have an appliance go down, a large appliance go down, or a pet rack up thousands of dollars in, in vet bills or something like that, or an automobile decide to give up the ghost and need thousands of dollars of repairs. That guts most of us. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is what David is saying here. You have 
Put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. So then we see David in verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Yahweh, make me to abide in safety. Now, I know that in this world, and especially since 2020, we've become a very, very safety-conscious conscious society. Um, I myself have added stuff to my house and, and put up ways to lock my house down tighter. And I'm not saying any of that is bad, not in any way, shape, or form. But David is very clear here. When you read the histories in the Scriptures, and you see what David goes through. Yet David is able to sit here and go, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. Not just lie down, I will lie down and sleep. And the reference here is to a complete and comfortable sleep. He's going to sleep the sleep of the dead. He's, he's going to sack out for 12, 15 hours, and he's going to get himself a good rest. But you alone, O Yahweh, make me to abide in safe way. That God alone is his protection. And that should be an example to you and I. Yes, David is giving us clear guidance as to where our thoughts need to be, where our heart needs to be directed, and what the ridiculousness and folly is of being in rebellion to God and in going in any other way. But he also makes clear that if we're, spoke, if we're focused on, if we're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then in peace we can lie down and sleep. For God alone will make us abide in safety. So that is Psalm 4. Now Psalm 5, well, actually I want to read this to you. I came across this quote from Andrew Bonner. Um, Andrew Bonner was mid-1800s, mid-19th century. Um, If you ever get the chance... He did a biography of Robert Murray McShane, which is a wonderful biography. Robert Murray McShane was a great guy, but Bonner's biography includes a lot of McShane's um, uh, journals, so you really get a feel of McShane himself, which was his whole point. But Bonner was a wonderful, wonderful pastor, preacher um, that gave so much for the kingdom. But he, he wrote about this about this psalm. And he said, we might imagine every syllable of this precious psalm used by our master, Jesus Christ. You can. You can read through this and you can see it being Jesus as opposed to David. And again, we rem- if you remember from, I think it was last month, that David is a type of Jesus. He is a foreshadowing of Jesus. He was the Savior for Israel at that point. He brought them out of such a bad place. So he was a Savior. So th- this is you can easily see Christ saying the same thing. So let me let me start again. We might imagine every syllable of the pre- previous of this precious psalm, sorry, used by our master Jesus Christ. Some evening when about to leave the temple for the day and retiring to his wonted rest at Bethany. After another fruitless expostulation with the men of Israel, and we may read it still as the very utterance of his heart longing over man and delighting in God. But further not only is this the utterance of the head It is also the language of one of his members, David, in full sympathy with him and holy feeling. 
This is a psalm with which the righteous may make their dwelling resound morning and evening as they cast a sad look over a world that rejects God's grace. They may sing it while they cling more and more every day to Jehovah as their all-sufficient heritage now and in the age to come. They may sing it too in the happy confidence of faith and hope when the evening of the world's day is coming and may then fall asleep in the certainty of what shall greet their eyes on the resurrection morning sleeping embosomed in his grace till morning shadows flee. I'm sorry, when I read that quote, I was like, yeah, he's talking to me. Because it's exactly, I, uh, like he said, this is a psalm with which the righteous may make their dwellings resound. That's you and me, because I'm sorry, it applies. This psalm applies to the world you and I are in. David is speaking to you, like, like Jay has been running across where we see these prophets and Amos specifically, as Amos, with what he's saying, could be speaking of our world, or what David is saying here in Psalm 4 could be speaking of our world. So then we going into Psalm 5. For the choir director, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh, consider my meditation. Give heed to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. O Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not sojourn with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, in the abundance of your loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will worship in fear of you. O Yahweh, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the abundance of their transgressions, thrust them out. For they are rebellious against you. Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous one, O Yahweh. You surround him with favor as with a large shield. So again, we hear, have at the beginning here, it's for the choir director. And, and the LSB says for the flutes, basically the Hebrew there, it's for a wind instrument, a wind instrument, something you would blow into. And again, it's a psalm, psalm of David. And as I said, as we were talking about Psalm 4, we really don't have a clear indication of a specific time frame, whether it was around Absalom, whether it was when he was um, at Ziklag, whether he was it was while he was out there running in multiple places, running away from Saul, whatever it was, we don't really know. Um, but again, the way he's talking about the boastful and the wicked, he's still under pressure here. So we we don't want to assume this is David sitting in the in the in the middle of his house in the middle of Jerusalem, at his ease, sitting on the roof, looking out across the city. Okay. So verse 1, Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my meditations. Again, David, David here is, is trying these first three verses for David. Again, like I talked about with Paul, how Paul just jumps into prayer. Here's David again, like he opened um, Psalm 4. 
He's going to open this one with prayer. The first three verses, give ear to my word, O Yahweh, consider my meditation, give heed to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. O Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice, in the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. So again, he's, he's, he's asking God, that's part of his prayer, and of course I, I, I would think most of us would pray in some sense like this. He's saying, please hear me, please hear me, God. Please consider my meditation. And, and what he's talking about is his, his meditating on the words of God, his focusing on the words of God. And he goes on, give heed to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. So give heed to the sound of my cry, or in some translations, it's the voice of my cry. Spurgeon says of this, crying hath a voice, a soul-moving eloquence. Coming from our heart, it reaches God's heart. Ah, my brothers and sisters, sometimes we cannot put our prayers into words. They are nothing but a cry, but the Lord can comprehend the meaning, for he hears a voice in our cry. To a loving father, his children's cries are music, and they have a magic influence with his, which his heart cannot resist. Now, I know that's true for me. I, I mean, I, and I could tell which child, which child was crying. And the fact is, my grandson, it's even worse than it was with my own boys. Um, I know when he's crying, and, and it doesn't, even if I know he's just throwing a fit and throwing himself into a cry, it's brutal. It's brutal trying to take that and, and not, not, not give credence to him because in that case, he's just throwing a tantrum. But again, that this is the, there is a clear sound of our cry for help that God hears. That is Spurgeon speaking of that. And again, he is our loving father and he hears our cries and responds. But also notice how David refers to him, my king and my God. Observe carefully these little pronouns, my king and my God. They are the pith and marrow of the plea. This is again Spurgeon. Here is a grand argument why God should answer prayer. Because he is our king and our God. We are not aliens to him. He is the king of our country. Kings are expected to hear the appeals of their own people. We are not strangers to him. We are his worshipers. And he is our God. Ours by covenant, by promise, by oath, and by blood. And again, so I know it can be hard in our country because what came about to found this country we have this resistance to any idea of a monarchy, any idea of a king. We hate that idea. And the sad fact is that we don't grasp, sometimes we're just not clueful enough to grasp, is we've always had a king. Doesn't matter what happened in 1776. Doesn't matter what happened in the War of 1812. Doesn't matter any of that. Doesn't matter what it led up to that here. We've always had a king. And as Spurgeon said of it, he's our king by covenant, by promise, by oath, and by blood, as he is our God. He is our king. And, and because of that resistance to it, we don't understand the concept of a king. It was the responsibility of a king to provide a safe place and a reasonable environment for his subjects to be able to live and work and grow and procreate and to live joyful lives. 
And all we've seen, of course, humans mess that up. We're not very good at doing that the correct way. Thus, we've had such bad examples throughout our thousands of years of history. But God is perfect. He is perfect and he is immutable. He never changes. So he is the perfect king. As badly as we want to resist that and we want to vote in what we want, truthfully, anything we voted in would not be what God is to us as our king. So David makes clear, give heed to the sound of my cry for help, my king and my God, for to you I pray, which is exactly who he should pray to, as should we. O Yahweh in the morning. So we see him go on and he's actually going to make promises here. He makes four promises here in verse 3. O Yahweh in the morning, you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. So what we will see, what we see here in, in verse 3 is that David promises that he will pray, that he will make a conscience, he, he will make conscience of praying and make a business of it. Unto thee will I pray. Others live without prayer, but I will pray. Again, this is a way that David is dif- differentiating himself from the world around him. He is promising that he will pray. How many of us, even though we claim to be Christians, and even though we claim to have a prayer life, how many of us don't make, make a, a job of it? How many of us don't make, a, make work of it? I know my prayer life suffers. I work hard on it, and it still suffers badly. I don't know the Christian out there, even ones who, who put forward such great godly fruit, that the first thing that they'll, they'll say that they struggle with is their prayer life. So yeah, we're going to struggle with it, but that means we should just work all the harder at it. And this is what David is promising here, is I'm going to work at this. But he goes on and says that he will pray in the morning. His praying voice shall be heard then, and then shall his prayer be directed that shall be the date of his letters to heaven. This is, this is uh, Matthew Henry speaking of it. Not that only. Morning and evening and at noon I pray, nay, seven times a day will I praise thee. But in the morning he will certainly be praying. He's not only saying, I will pray, he's telling God, he's praying to God, I will clearly pray to you in the morning. Maybe that's what we need to be doing is giving ourselves a schedule as to when we're going to stop, put everything else aside, turn the phones off, turn, the, turn, turn ringers off, TVs off, you name it, and get down on our knees and pray. The third promise, that he will have his eye single and heart intent in the duty. Saying, I will order my prayer to you. He's ordering his prayer. He's making this a duty. I will direct my prayer as a marksman directs his arrow to the white with such a fixedness and steadiness of mind should we address ourselves to God. Again, what David is indicating there is that he will order his prayer. It's not going to be this random, falling apart, um, struggling kind of thing, trying to fight his way through um, what he's praying about. That he's going to have it very, very well ordered, and he's going to have it very well directed. And I, I know that's part of where I struggle that I, I go into my prayer closet. I don't really have a prayer closet, but I go to where I pray and I sit down and then I kind of stumble along and I fumble in my speech because I haven't ordered my prayers. But David is being clear. Not only I am going to pray, I'm going to pray to you in the morning and I'm going to have my prayer ordered so, so as 
you know, uh, Matthew Henry says, I will direct my prayer as a marksman directs his arrow to the white. And finally, the last three words, and eagerly watch. David indicates there that he will patiently wait for an answer of peace. I will look, look up, will look after my prayers, and hear what God the Lord will speak. That makes perfect sense. Psalm 85, 8. Let me hear what the, what the God, Yahweh, will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his holy ones. But let them not turn back from, to folly. Habakkuk 2, 1. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the fortification. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me. And how I may respond when I am reproved. Again, so David has promised, I will pray. I will pray in the morning. I will order my prayers. And I will wait for your reply. Not that I'll get impatient, not that I'll get angry because I haven't gotten the answer back as fast as I, as I wanted to get it, but I will wait till in God's good time I get the answer back. Honestly, David's prayer right here, it's a heck of an example. Again, we always, we always tend to go to what Everybody calls the Lord's Prayer, but I agree with Jay. It's more the disciples' prayer than the Lord's Prayer um, as an example, and it's a great one. But David's right here is one as well. Please hear my words. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray, O Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. And I know it's a little early, but we're not going to have the time for me to finish Psalm 5. So we will have to pick that up next month. We are a little bit short of time. And I don't want to get halfway into the next section, which is very specific, and leave you in the middle of something. So, does anybody have any questions? All right, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us together this evening, for giving, a, giving us this time to partake of your word, to dig into the Psalms, and to continue to work through, at least in these Psalms, work through the words of David. Lord, we would pray that um, we would see in David guidance, in, the word, in his words, guidance as to how we should walk, as to the rebellion we should leave behind, and as to the God that we should turn to, our God and our King. Lord, we pray that we would take this learning out of here, that we would have been edified and equipped through this time together this evening, um, and that it would continue to guide us as our walk, hopefully, becomes more and more like the walk of your Son. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you.